Okay, good evening. Good to see everyone again. And uh, again, bring greetings from Johannesburg. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, if you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. So let me read it, and then I'll give some background, and then we'll, we'll dive into the text. So 2 Corinthians 12, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go into visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So some background. Uh, church at Corinth is planted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it seems that he spent about 18 months there, quite a long time in comparison to many other of the churches that he planted he really gave of himself to this church. It was a city that was famous for its sexual immorality, for its debauchery, uh, but it was also a wealthy city, uh, but there was also uh, gross inequality socioeconomically, uh, very similar to cities like Johannesburg. Uh, there, were, there were many different religions, many different cultures, uh, very, very similar to major cities today. And these sins, of course, as you know, unfortunately, when the Lord saves us, we are not suddenly perfect, uh, if only. That would be wonderful. But we bring our, our background with us often. Uh, we are new creatures. We are changed. But uh, old habits die hard. And so the Corinthians had brought these sins into the church. And Paul deals with a lot of these sins in his first, uh, what we call First Corinthians, uh, in our Bibles. He then visited the city of Corinth again, what he calls his painful visit, and he finds out that these false apostles have crept in and tried to turn the church against him. In fact, they've been very successful in turning the church against the Apostle Paul. Uh, they had boasted about uh, their letters of recommendation. They had boasted about their eloquence and their strong leadership style, all the things that the Corinthians valued and even people today uh, value. Uh, they were charismatic, they were dynamic leaders, they were good-looking leaders because they mock Paul for being ugly, 
they accuse Paul of being a liar. They accuse the apostle Paul of being a thief. They say that he was not eloquent. They say, look, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is contemptible. It's weak. Uh, he's ugly. He's not eloquent. Uh, they, they really were very nasty about the Apostle Paul, and they are successful in turning the church that he loved so much, gave so much of his time to. In fact, it was a church that he didn't even uh, ask for financial remuneration from. He loved this church, he gave himself fully to this church, and yet they turned against him in such a horrific way. And so Paul is forced to defend himself, and he keeps apologizing for it. He keeps saying, it's foolish of me to do this, it's a stupid thing for me to do, because as Proverbs says, let another commend you and not yourself. Uh, you know those people that always have to you know, commend themselves in every conversation? You, you, know, you say, sure, I've just been on a holiday down to this place that's nothing. You know where I went. Uh, uh, they always have to put themselves forward. Uh, Any time maybe you might think ill of them, they have to defend themselves. They're very quick to defend themselves. Paul was not like that. In fact, he says uh, he cares very little what, for, for what people think of him because it's before God that he, he stands. But here he is forced to defend himself because if the church is seduced by these false apostles, they will then lose out on the true gospel. And Paul loves this congregation, so he's not there just trying to defend himself because it's, you know, he's like Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. You know, it's a, this is defamation. How dare you say this? Uh, I won't have it. Uh, he loves them, and he realizes if they reject his apostolic authority and his apostolic teaching, they will go to hell. Uh, if you reject the teachings of the Apostle Paul, if you reject the the clear gospel message of the Apostle Paul, there is no other gospel. Remember, that's what Paul says. There isn't another gospel except the gospel I have received and given uh, that is written for us down here. So he does boast, but he does something quite remarkable. He throws boasting on its head, if I can put it that way. He actually boasts in an ironic way. He boasts about his weaknesses. He boasts about everything that was shameful in the Greco-Roman culture. He boasts about working hard with his hands. He boasts about his suffering. And they had actually said, this guy suffers so much, how can, you, how can the Lord be with him? You know? Shipwrecked three times. Okay? I would not travel with Paul. Okay? Like, how unlucky is that? <laughs> okay? uh, of course, we don't believe in luck. We, providence. How unprovidentially good was that? <laughs> uh, three. Terrible, terrible suffering, stoned and left for dead, beaten many times. And so they saw that as a mark that he's not really a true apostle. Because, of course, if you're close to God, your life's going to be amazing. Isn't that right? Don't, if you nod your head, we can chat afterwards. Okay? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, the opposite is promised. Isn't that right? The Lord Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they do this to the Lord Jesus, we are also going to suffer. So... Uh, if you came here, it's your first time and you're hoping for an uplifting message that come, become a Christian and everything will be great. Unfortunately not. Uh, I don't have that message, but I have something far greater. Uh, this life you will suffer, but it's for your good. And that's what we're going to see. And so here in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, you can keep your Bibles open. We'll just go through it verse by verse. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. So notice again the sarcasm. You know, I have to boast, but really it's a waste of time. I will go into visions and revelations of the Lord. So these 
what he calls super apostles, these pseudo apostles, these false apostles, love to boast about their visions and revelations. Does that sound familiar to the church, contemporary church? Uh, just a quick one Google search uh, of you know contemporary pastors and visions, and I found this one by the so-called Shepherd Bushiri. He says, this is, this is one of his, his preachings, you know. Before I came into this place, I had a vision. I saw blue paint in a basin, and there was a white cloth hanging above it. An angel was holding this cloth. On the other hand, there was another basin with clear water. As I watched attentively, this angel then took this towel and put it in the basin where there was blue paint. So he's got angels. Angels are, are there with him. As expected, the towel turned blue. He then removed the stained towel, and he put it in the pure water, and this clean water then became blue as well. To my surprise, however, the first basin that had blue paint was no longer blue. It was now clear. It was as though there had been a reversal. The Lord then, so now the Lord is in this vision. The Lord is is there with him. Then went on to reveal the interpretation of the vision. The blue paint symbolizes the glory that the worldly people enjoy. The cars, the mansions, the multi-billionaire companies. The pure water symbolizes the saints who do not have what these people have. And the towel is the mantle of God. Now look at this. God said, within six months from now, there will be a huge financial transfer from wicked men to God's children. He said this in 2016. I haven't experienced it yet. Uh, But this is common. Uh, And people love this kind of thing. To hear, I had a vision. God showed me. God told me this. They're not satisfied with the scriptures. They have to come with a, a vision. And you know, the thing with a vision is, there's a, there's a uh, you can see this pulpit is quite high. If you, I'm sure if you go to some of the older church buildings in Potchefstroom, um, they have sort of staircases up to these pulpits that look down over everyone. And there was a saying, in, in an English saying, that said six foot or six feet above contradiction. And the idea was that the pastor is, in a sense, six feet above contradiction. They stand six feet above everyone else, and you can't contradict them, uh, which shouldn't be the case uh, unless the pastor is preaching God's word. Okay, You can't contradict God's word, uh, but the pastor himself is not six feet above contradiction. If I come to you and say, God has shown me, um, you must marry you, this person, or you must give me your car, how can you gainsay that? You can't disprove it. You see, a vision is unverifiable. You can't say, no, that's not true. You put yourself above contradiction. And that's what these false apostles were doing with their visions and revelations that they were claiming. So Paul says, I'm also going to talk about these things. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now notice what Paul does here. He's talking about himself, but he reverts to the third person to deflect attention away from himself. Can you see that? Even in the way he's talking, he's embarrassed. Uh, He does not want to do this. He does not even want to speak about himself, and he certainly doesn't want to speak about very precious experiences with the Lord that are private. But he says, 14 years ago I was caught up into the third heaven. Third heaven isn't some esoteric thing that you need to worry about. Uh, Just the way they saw the world. There was the first heaven, that's the atmosphere. Second heaven is the sky stars, the moon. The third heaven is God's dwelling. So he says he's caught up into into God's dwelling. He also calls it paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He couldn't tell those things. 
Um, verse 3, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether, etc. Verse 4, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, isn't this interesting? Paul says, you know what? I was caught up into the third heaven, but you know what? I can't tell you anything about it. It's almost a worthless vision, isn't that right? I can't even talk about it. I'm not allowed to talk about it. It's unlawful for me to talk about it. In terms of the church, it was useless. So he says, you guys boast about your revelations. I've also had a revelation, but I'm not even going to talk about it. Okay. Also something to say here that there are times when God's people do experience very precious moments with the Lord. I'm not saying that you should be expecting visions or revelations or something like that, but there are times that God's people sometimes might experience an intense closeness with the Lord. But those are precious and private. Okay. Those of you here at, at, at uh, Northwest University, I remember when I was at Varsity, uh, you know there's those people that don't know the Lord and they'll boast about, yeah, last night I slept with this person. Now you know that there was no intimacy or vulnerability or love there. The fact that they can talk so freely about it. It was not something special or intimate between a couple in a covenant relationship. What husband or wife would go around talking about their sex life? Because that's intimate. That's, that's precious. But yet these false apostles and false teachers today just talk about being with the Lord like it's, <laughs> it's normal. This morning I woke up, the Lord was at the, the foot of my bed and we chatted. Uh, an angel did this, an angel did that. Paul says, no, no, no. This was so precious. Now, Paul was an apostle that the Lord had to strengthen, so don't go expecting these things for yourself. Uh, but just to say this, that if someone has a real experience with the Lord, it is not something that you just blurt out. It is something precious and private. And so Paul says here, he actually experienced something. He says, look, verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. So Paul said, look, if I were to boast in this, I wouldn't be a fool because I actually experienced this. Okay. You see, the problem with the, 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 these claims of revelations are that they're unverifiable. Um, and Paul says, look, I actually experienced this. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. This is just, again, wonderful seeing the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says, I don't want people to think more of me than what they can see and what they can hear from me. Okay. So Paul is saying, I want you to judge me on my character and the, and the content of my message. Okay. It's, this is critical for all of us. Now, we're not apostles, but if you're a child of God, this is critical. We live in a world, as we understand, with social media, where everything, your image is curated. We have a persona on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, wherever it is, on LinkedIn, where we want the world to view us in a certain way. We Photoshop, we do this, we edit, we do all sorts of things. Paul says, no, you must arrive at your conclusion, your judgment of me, based on my character and the content of my message. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches, how we are to judge false teachers. Their character and the content of their message. 
And so Paul says, I don't want you to be thinking, sure, Paul's so amazing. You know, he had these incredible revelations and visions. He's a guru. I wonder if he levitates. Uh, no. How have I lived? What is the content of my message? Does it align with the teaching of the scriptures? Is it true? And that's the same as we look for, as we hopefully, Lord willing, raise up more and more elders, uh, deacons, people in ministry, send out, plant other churches, long-term, all of these things, but even for every single Christian. Remove yourself from trying to pretend, projecting a persona, trying to look holy. Even we saw it in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? To look like you're spiritual the way that you pray. To, to, to sound spiritual. We want people to think certain things of us. Work on your character. And if, if, uh, even if you're not up front here teaching, all of us are called to make disciples. Make sure that the content of what you're sharing is faithful to God's word. Paul could have boasted about so many things, isn't that right? One of the geniuses of world history. Uh, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most influential people in world history. His shadow, the, the shadow of the Apostle Paul looms large over, especially Western history. But he doesn't boast about all of those things. In fact, when he even mentions the things that we would think his CV, he says, I count it as excrement. It's like putting excrement on my wall if I were to put that CV up. That's nothing. That's all meaningless. It's worthless. What is of value is that Christ, that I'm known by Christ, that I belong to Him. And so it's very liberating if we can, if we can grow in this area because so much of our, our time is taken up with fear of what other people think of us. And so we're obsessed with trying to, to shape things and mold things, especially when you're single, okay? Uh, now, don't go the other side, I'm just real. Uh, okay, that just means you've got no character. Okay, part of character is self-control, controlling your your tongue. Uh, all the virtues that are found in in Scripture—that's what is godly. That that is what is beautiful and honourable. Verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So to keep Paul humble, a thorn is given him in the flesh. So that's where the, the title of the sermon is Visions and Violence, sort of the image of violence. You know, He's getting this thorn rammed into his flesh. The word can be translated as stake, so to be impaled. It doesn't really fit the context, though, because uh, he's still able to do ministry. Of course, if you're impaled on a stake, there's not really much you can do. Uh, this is something, though, that is painful uh, and in many ways debilitating, but he is still able to persevere through. Now, we're not sure what this thorn in the flesh is. It's a lot of fun for... Th for uh, uh, theologians to discuss this and, and theology nerds and Northwest is the capital of theology nerds I'm sure <laughs> yeah uh, so so I, I enjoy this discussion but you don't need to lose sleep over it uh, let me just say there's sort of 
three possible views that I think are exegetically possible, that you're not, you're not doing damage to the text. Uh, each one is possibly true. So thorn in the flesh, flesh could be just his physical body. So it is some sort of physical suffering. Uh, and because people have to write their doctorates on something, people will write on anything that people have argued he had malaria, he had epilepsy, he had terrible headaches, uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, the one that makes the most sense to me is that he had some sort of uh, eye condition. This is actually personally where I lean, if you're actually even interested in that, but uh, uh, that he, he had a condition with his eyes, uh, and that uh, was actually uh, disfiguring. So that's one of the reasons they said, look, he looks ugly. Okay? Um, the other reason is that when we come to the book of, or his epistle to the Galatians, he speaks of his weakness in the flesh, and then he says to the Galatians, I know that if you could, you would be willing even to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me. It's quite a strange thing to say. But if you th- consider that he, he had this eye disease, then that makes sense. Later on in Galatians, he also says, look, I'm writing this part now. You can see how big the letters are. Okay, which, again, if someone couldn't see properly, makes sense with large handwriting. Um, the other thing that it helps with is where they, that they, they said he looked ugly. Okay, so I lean towards that one. But again, the passage does not tell us. But it could be something physical. If you take flesh to mean his, his, uh, uh, the way Paul sometimes uses flesh as one's carnal nature, to say he had a thorn in the flesh, as in a, a very strong temptation. So we're not saying that he was falling in sin. We're not saying, well, Paul had a, you know, a problem with he, he always lost his temper, that guy, or he was always committing adultery, that guy. Or No, we're not, we're not talking about that. We're saying but he had a strong uh, temptation, a drawing towards a certain sin. And uh, I think most Christians will have a certain Achilles heel Okay, uh, you, you probably, if you know yourself well enough, will know that you, you either are drawn in some way maybe to, to foul language, to losing your temper, to lust, to greed, to, to something. There's something that pulls you. And so there's an argument that maybe there was something there. Again, if I was to go with this one, I would think Paul probably battled with anger. I can see some of that coming out in Acts. He gets angry with the high priest, doesn't know it's the high priest. He gets angry with the woman who's demon-possessed around him and I think responds in a carnal way. So if I were to go that, I would say it might have been that, that he was sort of could be tempted uh, in a very strong way to anger or frustration. And then the last one is a messenger of Satan to take that as uh, a person who goes around slandering the apostle and doing damage everywhere that he that he goes. I think that's the weakest one because... Uh, they normally link it to the people in, in Corinth, but Paul has had this thorn in the flesh for 14 years. Okay, so, But anyway, all three are possible, and I think the Holy Spirit is intentionally vague because if, if it was just sickness uh, and you don't battle with sickness, then you could say, well, it's not really applicable to me. If it was maybe a strong sinful urge... Uh, and you, you maybe feel you don't really have that in a specific area, you would also say, well, it's not really relevant to me. But because it's vague enough and broad enough, 
we can, we can have application to every one of, of us. Now, why did God give him this thorn in the flesh? It was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited, proud. Now, it's very interesting that the only other place where Paul uses this word, conceited, is when he's talking about uh, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the one who is commonly called the Antichrist. Now, isn't that interesting? This, this pride is so demonic, so devilish, it's Antichrist. Paul is saying, I had this incredible experience of God. I could have been lifted up in pride, Antichrist pride. So God, in his grace, gave me a thorn in the flesh. And that's the language. He says, it was given to me. It was a gift. Okay. You know, at Christmas, you get those gifts where they leave the tag on so you can send it back. This is one of those gifts where you're like, Lord, can I send this one back? Like, but I want you to see, to take away from this sermon a paradigm shift in the way you view your suffering. Okay. Suffering is a gift from the Lord. Philippians 1.29, for you it has been given not only to believe, okay, so faith is a gift, you're not so clever that you chose God. It was a gift. He gave you faith. Gave me faith to believe. The most incredible gift. And then he says, that's not the only gift he gave you. He also gave you the gift to suffer for him. And so Paul says, it was given to me. It was a gift that God gave to me. It's a good thing. God gives his children suffering because if he didn't give it to us, we would be full of pride. We'd be lifted up in conceit. We would exalt ourselves against the Lord. You know that. When do you pray more? When things are going well or when you're suffering? Okay. I've heard people say, well, that's bad. We should pray the same all the time. Whatever. The reality is we don't. And we cry out to the Lord, we fall on our faces when we are suffering. We humble ourselves when we are suffering. If we respond correctly, sometimes we respond badly with bitterness and anger, angry with the Lord. But if we respond correctly, we can begin to even delight in our weaknesses. That's what Paul goes on to say. He is now, he has had such a paradigm shift that he can rejoice, he can delight in sufferings. And we'll see why now. Verse 8, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is a strong word. This is not just, uh, I've got five minutes before my next meeting. Lord, if possible, could you take away that thorn in the flesh? This is crying out to God. This is, can you imagine, just imagine if it is the eyesight. This is a scholar, an academic, a man who loves reading. He says, bring me the parchments. How it would have affected his reading ability, his studying ability. He couldn't write. He had to use secretaries. And then, and then he's a man who stands in front of other people. Okay. All the time aware that, that there's something not right with him that's distracting to people, that's gross to people. And every time he has to stand up. And imagine, maybe you've experienced this. I often say to the Lord, Lord, if it wasn't for the suffering, I would be a great Christian. You know, like, Lord, why do you do this? Like, 
Why can't you just give us 20 million so we can buy a new building? Like, just imagine, Lord, how many new people we could see saved. Why do you do this? Why, why is this pastor sick now in bed and not able to do what they could do? It doesn't make, Lord, but it's to keep us humble. And he pleads with the Lord. You can imagine him saying, Lord, I could do more for you. I could plant more churches. I could write more letters. Pleading with the Lord three times. Who does that remind us of? Three times beseeching the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think we need to read some esoteric thing into, you know, you only pray three times. But I, I, I want to say this, and it's, it's case by case, so don't take it as a blanket statement. But I think there's sometimes, and maybe this is true for you, there are suffering that you experience that you've been crying out to the Lord for for years and years and years and years. And maybe you just need to hear, His grace is sufficient. It's going to be with you till you die. It's there for your good. Now I'm not talking about maybe it's praying for a loved one or, or something like that. And we have, we're His children, okay? so we are privileged. We cry out to our Father. The Bible doesn't teach we should like uh, seek out suffering or hurt ourselves or something like that. But I do think sometimes there are things in our lives where we need to come to the place where, wait a minute, Lord, this is for my good. Your grace is sufficient. This is to keep me on my knees. Okay, I think it was Tozer or Ravenhill who said, you can't lose your footing on your knees. <laughs> Can't lose your footing on your knees. And suffering forces us to our knees. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Okay. And so he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or maybe a better translation is uh, dwell in me. And so here I think the way Paul is using the word power, he uses it in all different ways in his epistles, but here I think it simply means the ability to fulfill God's will for his life. To accomplish what God has called him to. That is prosperity, biblically speaking. You want to know what prosperity is? It is to fulfill God's life, God's will for your life. Okay. Joshua, be prosperous. How was Joshua prosperous? By fulfilling what God had commanded him to, to do. Prosperity might be for you. Suffering graciously in poverty or in sickness. Yet remaining faithful to the Lord. Continuing to love him. It is not health and wealth and all of these things. Prosperity. Jesus is the most prosperous man who ever lived because he obeyed the Father perfectly. Perfectly accomplished the will of the Father. And yet, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Didn't even have money. He had to ask someone, you know, give me a coin. <laughs> I need to show them Caesar's head. Okay. Uh, foxes have holes Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
So prosperity, we need to change again our understanding. What is biblical prosperity? It is fulfilling God's will for your life. How do I, I can only do that by the grace of God. I need his power to dwell in me. And how is it going to dwell in me? Well, it's through sufferings. That's what Paul is saying. When I'm weak, when I've reached the end of myself and I'm fully reliant upon God's grace and God's power, then I can accomplish God's will for my life. Now, this is really, really important because in the West, the atheistic West, uh, we are the worst at dealing with suffering probably in the history of the world. Okay? We have no category for suffering. If there is no God... My ultimate meaning in life is to, to live it up, to experience as much pleasure as possible. And suffering just gets in the way of that. And so I do everything in my power to get rid of suffering. I don't, this, there is no meaning, there's no meaning to suffering. Other traditional cultures at least acknowledge there is some, some good to suffering that can help us in certain ways. But in the West, we're just like, I just need to get rid of suffering. I have no category for this. I have no time for this. And yet when you read the scriptures, how much suffering is in the Bible? How much do the apostles and the authors of the New Testament deal with suffering? Over and over again. Suffering is for our good. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. Know this, that the suffering is purifying you. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. All of these things... Over and over again, suffering has a purpose and a meaning for the child of God. And here it is, that I can fulfill God's will for my life. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content, or I delight, some of your translations might say, uh, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Notice here, now it's much broader. It's not just a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. It's weaknesses. So it's applicable to all of us. We all have weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Now, very important, the Bible's not saying when a calamity befalls you that you're like, oh, that's fantastic, thank you for the news that I'm, I'm dying of cancer, thank you so much, that's amazing. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not saying that we should just be uh, silly about suffering. But it's to realize, wait a minute, this is for my good. It's to keep me humble. It's to draw me closer to the Lord. Notice what Paul says, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then. It is because of Christ that we must learn to think like this. And Paul goes further than just like, you know, Stoicism, the Greek philosophy, Stoicism, it's sort of grin and bear it type thing, okay? I'm oversimplifying, but that's the idea. Okay, You just endure it and push through, and that's the noble person. The Bible goes further than that. It's not saying, well, just endure it and you know, it's okay. It's, it goes beyond that. The Bible always goes beyond, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus doesn't say, you know, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Okay, that would be hard enough. He says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Okay, don't do is okay. Like I, 
I really don't like that person. I want to shout at them, but I'm not going to do that. But Jesus says, no, I want you to go further. I want you to bless your enemies. Do unto others. Okay, <laughs> like What? Lord, it's just enough I haven't shouted at the guy. Like, now I must bless the guy? Yes. You have to go further beyond our, our, our human limitations. And here it is the same. No, not just I endure sufferings, I just grit my teeth, you know, we'll get through this. But Lord, how good are you to me? Lord, you love me so much, you don't want me to become full of pride and conceit. You've sent, this is a gift from you. This person in my life, this suffering, this sickness, you're never against your children. He's never against his children, do you know that? He was against his son on the cross. He judged him in the place of you and me so that he's never against it. Even when he's chastening us, isn't the Bible very clear? It's because he loves us. It's not because he's against us. So you're suffering, whatever it is, and really if you're a Christian, there's just two places. You're either suffering right now or you will be suffering shortly. Okay? <laughs> it's just the way it is. Okay? It's not pessimistic. It's reality. And that's why the Bible is realistic because it spends so much time talking about suffering. Go and, you, can, you can go and study it. It's massive. Christianity isn't all about, you know, it's just great and wonderful and how to build your kingdom and how to do these things and this thing and build a legacy. It's how, to, how are you going to face suffering? How are you going to delight in it? One commentator says this, As the power of God was revealed through the weakness of the crucified Lord for the salvation of the world, so the life and power of the risen Christ are being revealed through his weak apostles in the midst of humiliations and afflictions. That principle applies to all of God's people. As you, and that's what 2 Corinthians is about, Paul lives the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life. It's amazing to see how Paul imitates Christ. Forsaken, rejected, slandered, humiliated, and yet continues to love even those who've turned against him. Later on, he talks about those who continue in unrepentant sin who will have to face church discipline, and he mourns over them. This is not a callous man who's like, oh, they're really bad. I'm, gl- I'm, great they're out- I'm glad they're out to church. He mourns. His heart is broken over, over people who continue in unrepentant sin. He lives the cross-shaped life. And when you and I do that, when we delight in the weaknesses, Lord, because when I'm weak then, I'm strong. And so this, this thing closing... Uh, the thorn in the flesh reminded me of when I was at school, just a couple of years ago. <laughs> and uh, I remember in history, I loved history as my favorite subject, but we learned about Shaka Zulu. And uh, he was not happy with his soldiers. He felt that they were weak. And uh, so he, he made them that, that they could not wear shoes anymore. And then he felt they were still not tough enough, so maybe you know the story. And so he made them run on fields of thorns. Okay. Uh, and it says this, When he noticed the fighters were reluctant to tread on the thorns, he ordered them to march and sing with utter disregard for their pain. They were required not only to march, but to do so with enthusiasm on Shaka's field of thorns. 
Now, it's not a one-for-one. One. Obviously, the Lord is not Shaka. He's not a tyrant. But, but you're going to suffer. You're going to have thorns in the flesh. What we are called to do is, even in that suffering and through that suffering, to rejoice. Because we realize, Lord, this is keeping me humble. If you are not humble, God resists the proud. The proud will not inherit the kingdom of God. So praise God for suffering. Lord, thank you for this thorn or thorns, whatever you've done. I can praise you because this is keeping me humble. That's how much you love me. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for the example of Paul. And what a lesson it is to us in the 21st century here in South Africa. Lord, we are so obsessed with comfort and um, freedom from any sort of pain and suffering. And um, You don't call us to be sadists, to seek after suffering, to self-flagellation or anything like that. But, uh, Lord, the suffering that you send us is for our good. And help us to see that it is to keep us humble. Lord, if there are any here who are not saved, uh, just show them, Lord, that outside of you their suffering is really meaningless. It has no purpose. It is not redemptive. Would they flee to you, Lord Jesus? Would they own their sin, take responsibility for it, confess it to you, and know your full and free forgiveness? And for us who are your children, help us every day when we're tempted to grumble and complain, when we're tempted to question you, over things that are not working out as we had hoped or when we suffer and we, we don't seem to see why, it, it seems to, to be uh, against the growth of your kingdom. Help us to have the mindset of Paul that this is good for us. When we are weak, then we are strong. Then your power abides upon us. Then we can fulfill your will for our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.